0: It's a one-star review, first of all. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just read it out loud. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. What do you got? <laughs> okay. Uh, beef cheek meat? My hubby was a meat cutter for 37 years. And then we switch into all caps. He said, never heard of them using cow cheeks. <laughs> Watch the story on Fox 21, May 9th, 2019 with Brittany Merlot.
1: Purple heart. I just love her. Hold on a second. (laughs) Hold on a second. If I'm understanding this right, (laughs) a local TV station is doing investigative reporting on a taco place just because they're suspicious that there's such a thing as cheek meat. Uh, No, I think you might've misunderstood a little bit.
0: Uh, Our low, we live, you know, Duluth is a, a relatively small city and we don't have a lot of news. So like when a restaurant, a new restaurant opens, Uh, especially because it's in this like revitalization district and they're really trying to push it. Uh, uh, It it makes the news. Right. So like the local news will do news
1: stories about new restaurants opening up. But this woman doesn't understand that beef cheeks are a thing. Yeah, she does not.
0: Uh, And she chose to give the the restaurant a one star (laughs) review without being there. She's reviewing it from a TV news story that she saw. And then, like, goes into reviewing the news channel, like talking about the newscasters that she loves. Um, just, I'm so yeah. Confused. Like,
1: I don't know. So she heard about beef cheeks on the news. Asked her husband, and uh, he was like, "I he was like, like heard that's of beef not
0: cheeks.
1: real." <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "One star. cut meat for
0: 37 years. That is not a real thing that you can make tacos out of." Like, there's a twist though. At the end, she's like. Then she, there's like a transition after she talks about the news. She's like, personally, I'd stick to the pork or chicken. My husband is going to try the beef. So he's going to try it anyway, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and then looking forward to visiting soon at three exclamation points, vintage pinball for green hearts. So like she gives it a one star review. Hasn't been there. Uh, and then r- gets really like effusive about being excited to go there. Uh, so and they're gonna try the beef cheek. It looks like, uh, so it's kind of uh, yeah. That's Duluth in a nutshell to me. Like it just crystallized what it feels like uh, to live in the place.
1: Welcome to Zero-Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening. I am Joe. Uh, I'm Chad. Uh, And we're back, and this is episode 11, and we have a bunch of different stuff to cover today. But before we get into our billionaires for this week, like we always do, we're going to discuss... Billionaires in the News. Yeah. You ready for that, Chad? I'm
0: ready. Let's do it. All right.
1: Billionaires in the
0: News. So this week, rather than talking about one news story, uh, this was a big week uh, for Billionaires in the News. So we're going to talk about a few different things. Uh, so I have a little list here. Uh, we're going to start with Tom Steyer. Um, yeah. What do you know about this guy? You know, I looked into him a little bit. He is, he is incredibly boring. He's a, he's a hedge fund guy. And- uh, He's just sort of a guy with a lot of money. Uh, he's really into impeaching Trump. Like that, I think that's his whole thing. He doesn't have a lot more to say, from what I've heard. Like what?
1: But isn't it, isn't there a pattern of of guys with a lot of money who don't have that much to say who just throw their name in the hat for president? Isn't that like an established thing at this point? Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess ever since Ross Perot, who who we're going to talk about in a second.
0: Yeah. We got three now, right? Like, I mean, if you count Trump, there's Steyer, Trump, and uh Howard Schultz.
1: But like Are Bloomberg was also threatening to. No, oh, I'm just yeah. talking about historically. You know, yeah, there's yeah. there's just there's going to be a billionaire in the wings who's just threatening to like Oprah. Oprah, Oprah, was, Oprah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, no, I think I you're being. Think
0: it, I'm just saying, I think you're a, being conservative. I think that like. We'll be lucky if there's only one. Right. Like that.
1: But it's a lane. It's a lane that exists. Absolutely. The billionaire lane to the presidency. And Trump, I guess, is the first person to pull it off. But he probably won't be the last. No. I mean, it's
0: just. Yeah. It's like the most obvious and stupid example of how hegemony works that you could that you could come up with. Right. Like people with money buying media airtime i mean like tom steyer especially like the dude is not even running for stuff you know prior like maybe two years prior to announcing he was going to run anything it was just like buying up all of this ad space uh to just get his image and his name out there um and it has like no reason or platform or experience or ideas right like he doesn't really have anything just like me. It's, it's me now. Pay attention to me now. Right. I will, I will spend my money. So you pay attention to me. He's sort of like an Instagram model, right? Like he, he just like, <laughs> just basically trying to push his image, uh, except, you know, instead of like trying to get, uh, money from advertisers, he's trying to get, you know, uh, political constituency.
1: Okay. What, so what else do we have in the news?
0: Um yeah so we talked about Ross Perot a second ago uh he died 89 years old um we talked about we had an episode back in episode 5 we talked about Ross Perot Jr um and yeah, uh
1: that was, was a he, classic episode
0: It was a classic episode he was the first person to to circumnavigate <laughs> the world in a helicopter um yeah. which was we figured out was extremely stupid because he was allowed to stop anytime he wanted so it was just basically... Well, not any time vac-
1: anyway. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But yeah, he was allowed to stop to refuel. Yeah. So this like, is true.
0: It's basically a vacation that just goes in one direction, right? Like he just doesn't have a return trip. <laughs> he just keeps going until he gets back home.
1: <laughs> I, uh, don't, I think that's a mischaracterization. But in any event... Uh...
0: <laughs> I didn't know that you love rospero Jr. so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <like> defending. <laughs> no, I'm, just, uh, I'm just trying to stay fact-based.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, Well, uh, speaking of facts, uh, one of the funny things to come out uh, on the event of uh, Ross Perot Sr.'s death is that there was there's this like story circulating that he left one hundred million dollars to Trump's reelection campaign. You're kidding. Uh, which doesn't, well, I mean, yeah, it's not true. Um, oh, okay. Uh, it doesn't really make sense, but like- uh, but, I didn't uh,
1: hear that. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess enough people were believing it that Snopes, you know, felt compelled to, to debunk it in an article. I see, okay. um, But what was funny about it is uh, it comes from potatriotsunite.com. Um, so it's a portmanteau of patriot and potato dot potatriotsunite.com, so, and uh, it's a conservative satire site, so they're trying to be like The Onion. Um, oh. and, and I wanted to bring it up because uh, I would encourage our listeners to uh, go on that site and read it. Um,
1: because I bet it's it, profoundly unfunny slash very yeah, funny. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it. it is the the least funny thing i've ever ever seen in my life (laughs) um i i saved some headlines uh like with parents away baron trump throws bitchin kager," um and uh another headline uh nancy pelosi approves a mini mosque on the capitol lawn for our new friends um, so like, it's stuff like that. that These guys is, uh, should
1: do the white house correspondence dinner.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be amazing. That would actually be like, you know, it would actually be really good. Um, but like, uh, it, it struck me. It's like one of those, it, this is, it's a pretty rare phenomenon in, in that like, it's impossible for me to tell if the person who made it is like 17 years old or 85 years old, like it's yeah. one of those, right? Like, it, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's some sort of like, either, it's not a
1: fully capable adult. Right. Like. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not all cylinders are seem to be firing. So like, but like, you know, often you can tell, Oh, this is a, this is kind of a, like a really old person wrote this or something, right. but uh, yeah, it's kind of unclear uh, <laughs> what the malfunction is, but uh, it's not. It's not very good.
1: What is? What are those YouTube videos? Those old videos that you love of that dude just making weird jokes from like the eighties.
0: Oh, moron movies. Uh, Len <laughs> Sella. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. did it. He did it all with a Super Eight camera. Uh, it sounds like also... kind of like
1: that level of humor, except political.
0: Well, no, I mean Len Sella is actually a genius. Um, <laughs> I think he's he's unironically, I think he's actually really good and very funny. Um okay. and uh and I would also encourage the listeners to Google moron movies. Uh, okay. I need it them. sorry,
1: I didn't mean to like disparage your, yeah,
0: your guy. No, I'm I'm pretty angry uh after that. Okay, um, let's hit
1: the reset button. I just didn't know what I was talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh billionaire number three in the news. This is a, actually a, a funny story. Uh Gnome Goatsman. Uh, oh, this is another, the curb cutter? Yeah. Uh a hedge fund guy in New York City. Uh he wanted a better parking spot in front of his uh mansion. Um he wanted uh basically a reserved uh street parking. And so he made a fake garage and had the curb cut so that it looked like uh, it was a garage it was a driveway entrance uh but it was all fake uh and he put up signs like private driveway well,
1: it and, wasn't fake uh, he really cut the curb he just didn't get the 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 permit right right permit. Yeah.
0: but from what i understand yeah. there's not actually a garage there he just he just parks his own car oh, in I front see. of the garage uh uh and i think so that 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 it's it just looks a garage like... door tacked to so a this wall. is just <laughs>
1: like this is like a classic Vinod Koshla move
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's like I this. I'm taking this public infrastructure uh, for myself. I'm just seizing it. Just primitive accumulation. Uh, it's pretty its amazing
1: that like once you have that much, it just seems right and appropriate to have a little bit more. You know, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the big one for last is uh is Jeffrey Epstein.
1: And we don't even want to talk about Jeffrey Epstein just because everyone is talking about Jeffrey e- Epstein, and and it's,
0: also it's a developing story. You know, I think that like I I actually don't. It's been
1: think... developing for like you know yeah years. But...
0: <laughs> Thirty years. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't think that like you know. Uh, it, the, the funniest takes to me are like, oh my God, QAnon was right. Uh, Pizzagate is real. It's all happening. Um, uh, because that was the sort of like idea of QAnon the whole time is that like these, uh, sex predators would be taken down by Trump
1: or something like that. But, uh, um, is uh, is Trump going to somehow get credit for taking Epstein down? No, <laughs> you know, to, uh, I don't think despite so. Despite Acosta mean, yeah. and, and everything else, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. probably uh, will.
0: He'll, I think he'll probably take credit uh, for it, but I don't know if he'll, if anybody will believe him. Um, but uh, the the best the best detail for me so far from Epstein, and then I'll shut up about it, was a New York Times article came out with the headline uh inside epstein's 56 million dollar mansion photos of bill clinton, woody allen and saudi crown prince <laughs> like, yeah and that made me I think of I saw that too. You saw that yeah it made me think of the um uh the it's Always sunny in philadelphia bicep flyer do you remember that one?
1: No, I don't I'm not I'm not I'm on top of this.
0: Oh, uh okay, I think we should play the clip because it's amazing.
1: All right. Play the clip. We're three cool guys looking for other cool guys who want to hang out in our party mansion. Nothing, Nothing sexual. sexual. Good,
0: good. <laughs> I just love that clip. Three cool guys looking for other cool guys to hang out in our party mansion. Nothing sexual. <laughs> uh, with Bill Clinton, Woody Allen, and Mohammed Ben Salman. <laughs>
1: Okay, so today I'm talking about Herb Simon. Herb Simon, owner of the Indiana Pacers and one of the brothers who founded the company that turned into Simon Property Group, the largest mall operator in the United States. Oh,
0: the mall king.
1: Mall king. So Simon Property Group owns or has a managing interest in more than 200 United States malls. Wow. Or retail shopping complexes, and it's the also the largest real estate investment trust in the country. REIT. You remember REITs? Yeah. Do REITs. you want to fam- familiarize our listeners or refamiliarize our listeners with what a REIT is?
0: Yeah, I mean REITs are basically like bundled real estate that you can invest in, uh, and they're often bundled into. Uh, like you know, retirement portfolios or other kinds of mutual fund uh portfolios. Uh, from what I understand, and the the thing that that sucks about them is that it kind of uh, de facto makes you a landlord by proxy, right? Like whenever you, uh, if you were to invest in a mutual fund that holds REITs, uh, then. Uh, you are indirectly responsible for predatory landlord practices, so.
1: Or whatever they're doing. Yeah, so this is- Or whatever they're doing.
0: Yeah, who knows, right?
1: Which is kind of the, the same thing when you invest in anything.
0: Right. Well, yeah.
1: But I'm not going to talk a lot about Herb Simon. He's twice divorced. He's His current wife, uh, who's from Thailand, was Miss Universe in 1988. Oh, yeah. Uh, so- I don't know what to make of that.
0: Do you ever notice that when we say divorced, we put the number first? Is that just because of Chris Farley and the uh, uh, Matt Foley <laughs> character?
1: I don't think he so. He said
0: though. thrice divorced. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think
1: he was making fun of the construction that already existed. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah.
0: Because you don't say, like, uh, I've twice eaten today or.
1: I know. It's weird. Language is weird. Yeah.
0: Anyway, sorry to interrupt.
1: No, it's good. Uh he has like 10 kids spread across these marriages including three adopted kids. And you know, he's the owner of the Pacers. There's not a lot of like obvious beef that people have with him as an owner, like compared to Tom Benson uh or wasn't wasn't it Tom Benson? The New yeah. Orleans Yeah. Simon Property Group has been accused of various scammy things over the years. And I guess any big company is likely to be accused of scammy things. I would be hard-pressed <laughs> to come up with an example of a big company that hasn't done something scammy. Um, and it's it's difficult to make heads or tails of all of these different lawsuits that you'll find online. But I'll just sort of burn through some examples of some lawsuits that have been filed against them. There, There was a... Lawsuit in Indiana filed for failure to pay overtime, citing the Fair Labor Standards Act. At at a certain point uh, back in 2011, they settled a $125,000 lawsuit uh, centering on issues of national origin discrimination. Forbes published an article uh, titled, quote, The Grinch of Malls, (laughs) Allegations of Greed at Simon Property Group, which doesn't seem like much of a headline. The deal with this story is that uh, at a certain point years ago, the board changed the stock incentive plan without the consent of the shareholders in order to provide the CEO, David Simon, with an $120 million stock bonus. And when the shareholders found out about it, they were upset because they hadn't been consulted and it didn't seem like a merit-based bonus. It was just some backroom deal. Um, And so that was litigated. A gift card scam alleged. There was a lawsuit back in 2004 claiming fees and expiration dates on on cards to some of their stores were illegal <laughs> uh, you know I, I'll just pause here and interrupt and just offer a public service announcement for all of our listeners don't buy gift cards <laughs> they're they're, <laughs> they're not good uh, according to a bin uh, according to a business insider article I read uh, almost one in three never get used which results in 10 billion. Wasted dollars slash pure profits for businesses.
0: Uh, That is a great scam. It's it's a
1: pretty solid scam. You got to hand it to them. That's a lot of free money. Better
0: than rebates,
1: even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing.
0: I know. Like, it's what's what's super amazing is that, like, somehow, they can like people were convinced that giving someone a gift card is more thoughtful than giving them cash right like that yeah like like for for whatever reason right like just be, i guess because like cash is the f- pure form of exchange value and doesn't have any sort of like <laughs> content in itself but it's right? like, like when a,
1: i give you a home depot a- card, you yeah, know, that I'm like, thinking about I, what you're all about.
0: Yeah. I know <laughs> that you, uh, mentioned once that you wanted to like, you know, frame a picture or fix your bathtub or whatever. Like, uh, and so I remembered that, uh, and therefore my gift is, is thoughtful. Just
1: is meaningful. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It's so strange. I mean, it, but it is like, like you say, brilliant because in, in addition to the 10 billion, like free Dollars every year. People also, when they have a gift card, are likely to spend on average about twenty percent more than the value of the cards. So you're getting them in there, and then you're you're getting them to actually buy more.
0: Oh yeah, I've been in that situation. So it's like, uh, well, I don't want to have a dollar and thirty-seven cents left on my card, so I'm going to buy something else, and then I end up spending another five dollars. Right? Uh, yeah. There there are a lot of dimensions to the gift card scam.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the final. To mention, according to this uh, Business Insider article, is that people don't even want them. <laughs> Only 27% of people say that they want a gift card. So if you're getting, <laughs> it's just sort of like, <laughs> just a, I
0: want to talk to those people.
1: <laughs> I really want a gift card. I prefer card.
0: gift cards. Uh,
1: well, it is amazing though, because there is no situation in which a gift card is better than money.
0: No. It's very cool because uh, it also introduces a new form of plastic waste, which is really good. Um, <laughs> so it's like single-use plastic cards oh, are God. also just just wonderful.
1: So what I'm going to talk about for the bulk of the segment is malls. And I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about malls because... There's such an extensive mall discourse that already circulates (laughs) out there in the world. I mean, the, the story of the rise and fall of the American mall has been told again and again and again, and I'm not sure how much more we have to contribute to this discourse here, but, you know, our podcast is about how billionaires affect American culture and infrastructure and what have you. and. At a certain point, we have to play the cards that were dealt. <laughs> Herb Simon was a mall guy, so I'm going to talk a little bit about malls. The first shopping mall ever was in, in, or in the United States. I don't know how, how you even define shopping mall, but the first, quote, shopping mall was in 1922. But this is not the kind of shopping mall that we think of today when we think of shopping malls, because it was an outdoor mall.
0: Yeah, that's the, not the a first, mall. Okay. I think well, of that as a strip
1: mall. I guess I'm just referring to the to the mall literature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not
0: trying to. I'm not questioning your research. I, I you know I'm just letting you know what I, I think of a mall as a big building with multiple stores. So it can't be a department store or a Walmart. Right. And it also can't be a strip mall. It has to be an interior. You know, like you you shop on the interior of a building, and there have to be multiple stores,
1: yeah, so the first indoor mall, which opened in nineteen fifty six was architected by a guy named Victor Gruen, who turns out to be this really important historical figure who lots and lots of people have written about. Any essay or article or literature about malls will at some point, reference Victor Gruen and tell the Victor Gruen story. Is Victor Gruen someone that you're familiar with? No, not at all. I, he, he was someone I'd heard of and then forgotten about. And then this reminded me of him, but you know, it's one of the great ironies of the 20th century that a Viennese socialist designed the template for one of the purest capitalist experiments in the history of the United States. Hmm. Victor Gruen basically created this monster. And decades later, after he saw what mall <laughs> culture had become, he definitely shared his remorse. He had like a, world. like
0: an Oppenheimer moment. Like, uh, I am become, what is it? I am become death destroyer of worlds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's definitely like filled with regret. But his his original vision for the mall was like a new kind of development that was like much more of a mixed use concept. Mm-hmm. So the mall itself was a part of a more comprehensive town square type landscape, which would have included apartment buildings, child care, bomb shelters, medical center, schools, lakes, parks, et cetera. Um, but this vision didn't come to pass. What came to pass was the original design for the building, which was in the 1950s, a incredibly novel design. So Victor Gruen had designed consumer environments before the indoor mall. And in his previous designs, he was known for these outward facing displays toward the street that would draw in shoppers and then dazzle them with different merchandise showcased in uh, clever and unique ways. But the idea for the indoor mall was based on an entirely different design concept. We've all been to malls. We know what malls look like. The outside of, of malls are very bland and not inviting. They're just bricks pointed toward the parking lot. Once you get inside the mall, there's an environment that's designed mm. to keep you inside. Yeah. So the the, the fundamental deal is this introverted architecture with anchor stores at both ends, an enclosed space, climate control, and all sorts of reasons for you to get distracted and to stay inside. So the effect of this architectural environment became famous and was ultimately uh, named after Gruen himself. The Gruen effect, or sometimes what's known as the Gruen transfer, <laughs> basically describes this this combination of sensory deprivation and overwhelming merchandise displays that turn people into consumer zombies who are much more likely to make impulse buys. And so, you know, it's the same sort of logic that casinos use when trying to keep people gambling.
0: I think, yeah, I mean, I think we can make a distinction. Like, it's not exactly the same as casinos. Like, there's, some, like, I think that there are there are some things in common, right? Like, uh, no windows and, you know, you minimize the clocks and stuff like that um, uh, so that people kind of lose a sense of time. Um, but the objective... At least, as far as I understand, the objective of a casino—I just—I think of slot machines—is like the most famous example, right? The objective there is to make everything sticky, right? Like that—you—you uh, uh, you come in and you—you uh, you sit down at the slot machine and you stay there, right? And so there are all these like you know, sounds and images that, uh, trigger dopamine release or whatever. Right. And so you kind of plug into the machine and you stay there. Whereas the mall, like it's slightly different, right? Like that it, it's not trying to affix you to a single spot. It's trying to get you to
1: circulate, but without ever leaving the perimeter. right? So like, it's a pretty semantic distinction. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically the same logic,
0: yeah, no, I mean, I think yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but I think you know, I think I think we can talk about a distinction between say malls and casinos. Um,
1: yeah, it's not. I mean, they're different. <laughs> 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 Let's talk about that video game that you sent. Yeah, me. <laughs> yeah I know it's this video game is absolutely very crazy. weird. In fact, I got to I've I've got to actually interrupt the podcast to to, to say something about this. One of the things about recording this show is that I have to hide in my basement. I have a really small house. And every time we do a recording session, I have to tell my wife to either leave or not move. (laughs) Because (laughs) I'll, like, if she walks anywhere, I'll hear her. And we're trying to keep this professional. (laughs) Uh, And so, anyway, she was really, really frustrated with me for scheduling this recording session that we're having right now. It's inconvenient for her schedule. And I tried to explain to her that this was kind of the only time that made sense. And she was really upset. And then I don't know how this worked, but somehow I was like, hey, check out this video game that Chad just sent me. And I sent it to her. It's the weirdest video game ever. I'll let you like explain it. But she loves it. That's what she's <laughs> doing right now. <laughs> she's up there, wired in. Oh Playing wow. this game. I yeah. So I b- couldn't play t- it for t- so more what's than like
0: five minutes. I it was really hard to understand for me. Um, for some reason, Bloomberg uh created a video game about malls. Uh, I think it's called American Mall. Uh, and I I guess it's to to teach you maybe to teach you about the economics of malls Uh and so you have all of these like failing stores I didn't get deep enough into it to to figure out like you you play the role of uh, a like mall manager right and so you make decisions about rents and uh um, promotions and and various things like that. Uh, I didn't really get that far into it. But the game starts in a really weird way, which is that you have to uh, click on rats and garbage uh, that are like are running around in your mall um and cyberpunk right right and that's and so there's a third category of trash that you have to get out of the mall uh by clicking on it and it's cyberpunks and so it's like it's like human beings who are, who
1: i feel like anybody who listens to this show should also play this game at least once yeah it's because it's worth playing
0: it's very weird uh it's very as far as i'm concerned it's uh not fun at all uh but it is <laughs> it is really strange. Um so yeah, we'll put it in the links uh and and you can check it out.
1: So, okay, we all know that mall culture is in decline. Do we all know that? I mean, we well, do. Well, if we? you've
0: been to a mall lately, I think you've probably noticed. I mean, all of the the big stores, the department stores are closing down, right? They're all going out of business. Uh, Pennies is gone. Uh
1: yeah, the de- the the era of the department store is really coming to an end. The major anchor stores that we typically associate with malls, the Macy's and the JCPenneys and these sorts of places uh, are not going to be the anchor stores of the future. I mean, they're increasingly getting replaced with stores, technology stores like Apple because people are buying their their clothes and everything else that department stores are known for selling more and more online. So by twenty twenty two, one study I read, cited in Time magazine, uh, is predicting that one in four malls will be closed. Wow! Which maybe isn't even that dramatic. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it is weird. Like there, you know, uh, a lot of places they they leave them there. They try to repurpose them. Uh, I remember someone told me once uh, that. There's an entire, uh, division called the dark store division, uh, at Walmart that tries to figure out what to do with, uh, buildings that they don't need anymore, like who to sell them to or whether to tear them down hmm. or whatever. I was kind of fantasized about, it. like, I think that's, that's what my dream job is. I want to work at the dark store division. <laughs>
1: What's well, kind of an interesting challenge. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are gonna replace the, the, the sorts of establishments that we Typically associate with malls and the future yeah. of malls. It's not like there's not going to be malls. A lot of
0: people think they're going to be farms. Um,
1: the, well, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah,
0: it's it's kind of hard to see uh, how that happens um, because uh, vertical. I mean, I I do some reading about this, but vertical hydroponic farming is a little bit. Uh, it, it's it's not a it's not a particularly realistic goal at least at the moment unless they find ways to dramatically. Uh, reduce the energy costs uh, of of doing it.
1: Well, I don't know that Simon Property Group is is thinking that creatively. Maybe they are. <laughs> you know what, what, what I read about their ideas for the future is more of a move from the typical retail experience that we're all familiar with, and moving moving toward what they're calling experiential retailing which involves such things as uh, a new jargon word from the industry is a a door display only retail environment where there's Uh, stores, but they don't sell anything. You just go in and kind of geek out on.
0: You just point your phone at a QR code and, you know, and then click to buy kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, like malls are already doing all these sort of targeted marketing. You walk into a store, they're tapping into your Bluetooth connection, they're sending you alerts. There's apps that can communicate deals in the moment in real time. Yeah,
0: No, I mean, that's that's something sort of like interesting about like, you know, once the the mall enclosure fails. Right. Because, uh, you know, the economy is changing because of technology. You have to find a way to kind of distribute that enclosure across social space, and so like you have to get the mall tricks of getting people to like making the making it, it sticky, right? Like making people uh, sort of get lost in the mall or spend more time there make impulse buys. You have to make that happen on phones instead of in physical space, right?
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it occurs to me that it's just like a new iteration of the Gruen transfer. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's just another. Way to trap the consumer, and uh, obviously this is happening uh, online and on uh, and on our phones everywhere we go. But if you think about it like that, like Victor Gruen may be the most influential human being to have ever lived. (laughs) (laughs) um, The legacy of malls, I think, boils down to devising this mechanism for this pure. Capitalist delivery system, which delivers goods to people yeah. and people to goods, that is still. Yeah unfold. A lot,
0: of, a lot of people have written about this, right? Like that, uh, the, the, yeah. the rise of suburbia is about producing this enclosure for the family, uh, where all of the stuff that formerly happened outside the home takes place inside the home. And, and, this, and then there are like, <laughs> you know, the development of these consumer enclosures as well. And so like this, is like logic of, uh, of keeping people in spaces where they can consume and, uh, finding ways for them to consume to uh, like uh, manicure or nest, you know, in their spaces uh, becomes like a driving principle of, uh, you know, post-World War II capitalism. And like, you know, people have written about how like that that model, right? Like the, the development of this like dual enclosure model, the home and the commercial district uh, uh, then like begins to fail. And so like, then the enclosure just like increasingly, uh, moves inside the home, right. With the development of personal computers, uh, and the internet to the, to the point where like, you know, it eventually gets reduced to like, um, you know, a person in their bedroom, right? Like, in other words, you have a cockpit from which you command all of the, the sort of services and products that you need, uh, to survive, right? And, and you know, we have this kind of like uh, um Wall-E model of uh, remember that movie of commerce, where like people are just sort of like sitting in their yeah. floating chairs, yeah, and uh, you know, and uh, um, and so like that that seems to be the sort of predominant model. But like really, like there's there's not much difference, right? Like it's still it's still the same idea. There's You're just not much difference. drawing yeah, a exactly. space and trying to keep people in that space, right? And that's that's the basic idea.
1: Right. Yeah. It's just more streamlined. It's just making it easier for the consumer. All right, Chad, what are you talking about today?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, I'm talking about Ira Rennert. Can you say that again? Ira Rennert, R-E-N-N-E-R-T. Okay. Um, you know, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, like the, uh, this is the, the type of person I'd never heard of Ira Rennert before. And really, like most people haven't, unless you're someone who follows financial industries uh, or financial scandal or.
1: So what's his what's his industry? uh he like
0: <laughs> it's hard to say i mean his industry is okay well i mean his industry's mining i mean i we can say that but sort of mining we'll get to that later uh okay. but like the you know i'd never heard of him before um if you're like a super right wing ideologue and you live in the hamptons maybe you heard of him but like uh, or if you're like, uh, you know, uh, somebody who lives in a polluted area around one of his mines, maybe you've heard of him, but like very few people have. Um, but he's the he's the kind of like platonic ideal of an evil billionaire. Like he uh, and and uh, I know you don't like whenever I say people are are evil and make those kinds of judgments. But uh, I I have a strong feeling you'll agree with me by the time we get to the end of this. He was born in 1934. Uh, He graduated from Brooklyn College in 1954, immediately got an MBA from the NYU Stern School, graduated in 1956, and then went to work on Wall Street. So nothing too crazy so far. Uh, In 1962, uh, he was censured by the National Association of Securities Dealers uh, for violating the SEC's net capital rule, uh, which is kind of confusing to me, but it basically means that you have to have enough money to cover your debts, and he was lying about how much money he had so people wouldn't know that he didn't have enough to cover
1: his debts. Uh, So this kind of censure is basically just a slap on the wrist to people just saying that's it is. is Yeah, it is if you
0: do it once, and then he did it again the next year. Uh, And and, uh, and that was a kind of uh, harbinger of things to come for his career. Uh, After the second Infraction. He was banned from security tradings uh, for his life, I believe. Although,
1: oh, OK. So he's one of the guys who's
0: been banned for life. Yeah. Uh, uh, but huh. he still does it. And I don't know if he has to have a proxy or how he gets around it or whatever. But um, or maybe he's been reinstated. I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, he. uh. So, I mean, he only worked in the industry for a few years until he was banned for life. Um, and then. Uh, uh perhaps unsurprisingly to anybody who's listened to this show before he gets wrapped up in the world of junk bonds with Michael Milken in the 80s so this is where oh,
1: wow. milken, milken
0: again milken again and you, you know uh I'm, I'm just like a quick pause right here to say i'm starting to to understand something about wealth accumulation in the united states which is that there was a, a cohort of people who all became super rich around Michael Milken, and a lot of them got in trouble. A lot of them got busted. A lot of them broke laws and and were uh, prosecuted for that. But none of them are like not rich anymore, right? Like that, uh, that all of the fortunes <laughs> that they amassed uh, are still, you know, uh, 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 growing, right? And and so like and a,
1: probably a lot of them attend the institute on a regular basis. Absolutely, and they're just kind yeah. of. Yeah.
0: So, um, uh, yeah, Renert uh, approached junk bonds in a slightly different way uh, than other people. And, and and uh, you know, we have talked about this before, but we never really explained junk bonds and, and what they are and how they work. And so I, I said I wouldn't do any financial explanation today, but I think I can do this in like 30 seconds. And, and it's very simple okay. and straightforward. Bust it out. So a bond is just a loan. Uh, you give me, I, let's say I own a business. Uh, You give me a a loan for my business and I pay that loan back to you after a designated period. And along the way, I'm giving you interest payments on the loan. That's what a bond is. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So like a normal triple A rated, you know, low risk bond pays an interest rate of like three to seven percent. A highly rated bond is almost certain to get me my money back. That's why they're low risk uh, in addition to the interest I collect. Right. But there's also these other bonds, and, and they're still around. It's a very big market still. They're called high-yield bonds, but uh, uh, they uh, uh, more often go by the name junk bonds. Um, <clears throat> and uh, these things will often pay double or triple in interest what like a, a low-risk bond would pay. But the, the difference is that high-yield bonds or junk bonds are risky, right? The riskier they get, sure. the higher the interest rate goes. But the risk is that the bond issuer, the company that you lent – the money to will default on the loan and and so you're taking a risk and you might not get your principal back right okay so that's it that's right. a, that's what okay. a junk bond is just a risky loan with a high interest rate uh, so in the 80s uh you know in the time of michael milken everybody was buying up junk bonds uh, it seemed like a good idea companies weren't defaulting on them and they allowed people to generate tons of money more or less instantly right so it's not the bonds that are really the thing it's like uh, when we're talking about the 80s, uh, we're talking about like hostile takeovers and, and leveraged buyouts <laughs> and stuff. A lot of the capital for those things were uh, uh, through selling junk bonds. Um, OK. So, okay. Uh, so Renert, Ira Rennert, he was in league with Milken. Uh, he was an outside board member at Integrated Resources in the late 80s. Uh, they defaulted in, on over a billion dollars in debt. Uh, among the scandals associated with junk bonds and Milken. Uh, but Rennert didn't get in any trouble uh, because he was an outside board member. Uh, so he just kept raising capital through junk bonds to buy new companies. And this is where the way that he made his money uh, gets interesting. So like he'd buy a company, a struggling company, a company in bankruptcy, a company being sold at auction, and then he'd issue a bunch of bonds on it. He'd like take a bunch of loans from investors uh, and he'd use that money to buy another company, right? So th- there's this kind of okay. cycle, right? Uh, and uh, that's that's part of what he did, right? Uh, I want to read a, a quick quote from um, uh, a Vanity a 2003 Vanity Fair article about Rennert um, uh, to give you a, a sense of the way that he approached uh, junk bond financing. Uh, quote, A decade after Michael Milken's demise, the junk bond market was bigger than ever, but Rennert played it with a twist that made even his own bankers call him rapacious. Instead of putting all the money he raised into his new company, Rennert took a huge chunk for himself as a one-time dividend. So, end quote. So, he'll get, he'll like issue $300 million in junk bonds and then just take $100 million of it for himself, right? Like, uh, uh, and that's legal how Ah, I'm getting to that. So the article continues, quote, the dividend gambit was entirely legal <laughs> because Rennert declared right on his bond offering how much he would shovel upstairs to himself. Why anyone would buy such bonds was the question, end quote. Right. Um, hmm. And the, the, you know, the, the idea is that like people kept buying them because Rennert kept paying the dividends. He wasn't defaulting on the loans. Uh, he said he'd give you 11%, you 12%, know, 15% interest on it. he keep paying those uh, because he also kept buying new businesses and issuing new bonds on those. Right, and every time he would take a big chunk of himself or for himself, like often a third of the money, uh, and uh, just put it in his pocket.
1: Right, but this is sounding like sort of Ponzi schemish, Like you need to keep on buying new businesses to yeah. <laughs> pay back those. Kinds it's of not just
0: that- kind of Ponzi schemish. It is <laughs> a pyramid scheme. And okay. as soon as one business, well, as soon as one of his businesses went bankrupt and he started having trouble paying back these loans, people started suing him, and then. All of his businesses went bankrupt. Uh, He had a string, his five major companies that were making him uh, uh, money all went bankrupt in a couple of years of one another. Um, And uh, in the mid 2000s, he was really hurting uh, because and this was before the financial crash. So this was like this is like between 2002, 2005. Um, uh, he, He kept it going for a long time. Uh, uh because you if you remember he started doing this in the 90s but you know like like most pyramid schemes it collapses after a while it happened in conjunction with a collapse in uh um the the prices of things like lead magnesium and coal Um, Which are the main things that he mines. But he was able to, you know, to kind of keep his companies on a lifeline for much longer. uh, And the way that he did that was uh, mainly by poisoning children uh, to to make money. Um, And this is this is where uh, his life uh, takes uh, his biography takes an extremely disturbing turn. So, as I said, uh, he would take out he, he would sell these bonds, basically take loans on the company take a bunch of money for himself. But because he was taking all that money for himself, uh, he had to cut corners at the companies. Usually the corners that he was cutting, and remember, he's solely involved in mining and chemicals and like the dirtiest stuff. He bought these businesses on the cheap and and was able to take out loans on their assets. Nobody else wanted to deal with them. They're a headache. They're environmental nightmares. They're bad press, right? Um, Right. uh, So he would get these. Uh, And then he would uh, uh, cut the budgets of these places. And uh, usually uh, those budgets uh, would be cut around environmental cleanup, uh, around uh, pollution, waste disposal Um, in in his Salt Lake City uh, or sorry, his uh, Utah facility. uh, He was sued by the EPA for nine hundred million dollars. Um, is, wow. uh, his businesses were so dirty that he was the single largest private polluter in the United States for years. And, uh, wow. and that does not even count his international businesses, which we'll get to in a second, uh, which were worse. Uh, so, uh, he, you know, I, I, like just quick pause before we get into the, the really dark stuff. Uh, he, uh, uh just let me say Renard has been sued a bunch of times by bondholders fined by the Department of Justice for raiding pension funds, bunch of forms of fraud, numerous environmental violations. It, it, there's just like too much. Right. Like I,
1: I he's got a long list. I'm not going to go into it. Right.
0: Like that. that yeah. I mean, he, his 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 life is one criminal act after another. Um, so I'm just going to focus on two things, uh, his environmental destruction and pollution and then what he did with his fortune. Okay. So, uh, like I said before, his businesses are mainly coal mining, lead mining, and magnesium mining. Okay. Um, like I said, uh, also, when the EPA sued him for $900 million, that was for uh, leaking dioxins into the Great Salt Lake uh, in Utah. Uh, but really, most of the publicity that surrounds him, uh, at least outside of his you know, mansion, Uh, is around uh, lead mining in Missouri and Peru. Uh, So uh, going back to another article on him, uh, here's a a quick excerpt about the Doe Run mine in Herculaneum, Missouri. Uh, Quote, Decades of pollution had often made the town resemble a child's glass snow globe, only with swirling sulfur dioxide and lead dust instead of snow. Sometimes the stuff was so thick that a driver couldn't see his way down Broad Street. The sulfur smell was acrid and intense. It burned the eyes and the lungs. The taste of it remained in the mouth. Gently, the dust settled on the sidewalks and in the yards of small houses that fanned out from the smelter. Residents picked up lead dust on the soles of their shoes and tracked it inside. Children put their lead-dusted hands into their mouths. In 2001, by Doe Run's own reckoning, the company released more than 2.6 million pounds of lead dust into Herculaneum. Historically, so
1: everyone there is just completely fucked. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. Uh, and, and here's uh,
1: specifically how they're fucked.
0: Historically, the company had assured residents that the odds of ill effects were slim. Yet, researchers were determining that even small amounts of lead absorbed by children in their blood and in their bones could cause learning disabilities, anemia, stunted growth, brain damage, and more. Pregnant women, as well as infants, were especially vulnerable even in healthy adults high levels of lead uh, such as a worker might absorb on the job could produce hypertension jitteriness a general stupor and a proclivity to various chronic diseases so you know those are some symptoms some other symptoms uh, that that uh, other articles have detailed children expressing breaking teeth fits at night reading disabilities hearing loss nausea lethargy narcolepsy behavioral and learning uh, behavioral problems and learning disabilities cancer deaths skyrocketed, right? You don't hear about this much because it's a small town, right? It's not-
1: Do we have, so are there stats about the levels of these afflictions in Herculaneum?
0: Yes, uh, yeah. And in fact, uh, the company was forced to buy homes from anybody who wanted to move. Uh, it was so bad, right? So like basically, they had to abandon the area. Um. Now, uh, first they tried to clean it up. They told residents that if they basically just cleaned their houses and vacuumed and did all of this stuff, that it would all be okay. And then it wasn't. And then they had to, you know, they said they'd have professional cleanup crews come in and then that didn't really work. And so, like, eventually families had to sue. And this is over a decade while their children are dying. Right. Uh, uh, And uh, um, and and even now uh, it is unclear to what degree uh, they've come through on, on buying the homes of the people who live there. Um, but it, just for some perspective on how bad it was, uh, uh, I, I, I garden, uh, 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 I, I enjoy gardening as a hobby, uh, and, um, and lead in soil is, is one thing that you worry about. Um, I'm like in the process of getting, uh, some lead tested in my yard. And, uh, so I was looking at the EPA, EPA guidelines on uh, safe level on, on the threshold, uh, that you have to be worried about, right. For lead and soil. And it's uh, 400 parts per million. If you have more than 400 parts per million of lead in your soil, you can't let your children play there. Uh, You can't walk over it and then walk inside your house. Uh, You got to do something about it, right? So one of of these families that we're talking about uh, who sued uh, Renco, uh, which is Renert's company, uh, tested the carpet inside of their house. And uh, it measured uh, 200,000 parts per million. Uh, remember, the safe level is 400 parts per million. Uh, dirt from the street measured 300,000 parts per million. Um, uh, the, the town was uh, ruined, right? Uh, and what's wow. important to keep in mind is that although this is a very small town, uh, you know, it's a few thousand people, I think it's for four to six thousand people, something like that, uh, it is... Not nearly as bad as the uh, sister mine in Peru, uh, Doe Run Peru, which is in La Arroyo. Uh, in that mine, uh, 99% of children tested positive for elevated blood lead. The mine put out 4.8 tons of toxic waste per day 2.5 tons of lead, 2 tons of arsenic, and 0. 0.3 tons of zinc per day. As of 2004, uh, Doe Run was fighting four lawsuits in Maryland, two in Illinois, and 44 in Peru. Um, so uh,
1: wow.
0: he, uh, he was the biggest polluter, the biggest private polluter in the United States uh, who uh, left a, uh, a trail of uh, damaged uh, people and ruined towns in his wake um, because he was uh, taking money. Uh, uh, the term is uh, – handing it upstairs uh, to himself uh, uh, and not putting it back into the business.
1: So was he able to keep all of that money when his companies declared bankruptcy and he was people were filing environmental lawsuits against him? And was that protected?
0: Yeah, you know, this is one of the most frustrating things and and, uh, sort of has my head spinning. Uh, but in all of this research that I did, uh, most of this, most of this kind of uh, like environmental violation expose type of stuff was done in the early two thousands, right? Uh, like 2002 to 2004. That was around the time when all of his businesses also were going bankrupt, uh, largely from being sued, uh, from, you know, uh, the prices of these things, uh, tanking from, uh, um uh the EPA also suing him right like there's a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of bearing down on him his fortune at that time from what i can tell was around 1 to 2 billion dollars um his net worth today is somewhere between 4 and 6 billion dollars i have no idea why i i i couldn't like it's like the record goes dark after 2004 or 5 um, he mm-hmm. was sued big time in 2015 uh, for improperly removing money from a business to pay for his mansion, uh, uh, and uh, uh, that that dated back to the the early 2000s. But I don't know, right? Like I don't know. So
1: somehow he just came through unscathed, and then some. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, How old is he's he? He's 85 now. Um, so, you know, so he's making all this money. You, 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 wonder, well, is he at least doing good things with this money? Uh, well, uh, no, uh, as I said, <laughs> uh, let's talk a mi- for a minute about what he's, he's done with his money. Um, as I already said this a couple times, he has the largest private residence and you know, it's a little unclear, but it's at least in the top three. Uh, some people might've built a bigger one since. And one of the reasons that they don't know is because, Uh, No one really knows what the square footage is. I've seen estimates between 70,000 on the low end and 100,000 square feet on the high end. Um, Whoa. And uh, here's a Bloomberg article that that details a little bit about his house. Across a cornfield in Sagaponack, New York, over the dunes and beyond the brown rushes looms Fairfield, the grandest and at $170.2 the most expensive home in the Hamptons. It has taken financier Ira Rennert more than five years to build his beachfront palace in the priciest hamlet on the east end of Long Island. Behind the Italianate facade lie 29 bedrooms and 39 bathrooms. A dozen chimneys tower from the Mediterranean-style roof. The formal dining room stretches 91 feet in length. That's three feet shorter than a basketball court. Another amenity Fairfield has, along with a bowling alley, a pair uh, each of tennis and squash courts, and a hundred and fifty thousand dollar hot tub, uh, according to billionaire. Uh, sorry, according to building plans and other documents filed at the Southampton t- uh, uh, town hall.
1: Oh my God.
0: Like if you, if you Google Ira Renner, 95% of the stuff that comes up about him is this house, right? Like it's often used in clickbait stuff. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people who sort of like make fun of him for like being this gauche billionaire, right? Uh, all of his neighbors yeah. hate him. They're constantly complaining. Even uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, famously wrote an article, uh, uh, you know, uh, yelling about this house because um, uh, um, he lived nearby, <laughs> okay. right? Like, uh, so okay. like, uh, um, uh, so, you know, he does that. What, what else does he spend his money on? Well, this is an interesting thing, uh, I thought, anyway. Uh, one of the businesses he bought in, in 1993 uh, was AM General, uh, originally a subsidiary of American Motor Corporation, uh, AMC, builders of the uh, AMC Eagle. The, I think the Gremlin is an AMC car, right? Uh, AM General, though, was a, a military contractor uh Rennert bought it out of bankruptcy like he usually does uh after uh clinton era uh defense budget cuts uh tanked the sale of its number one product which was the humvee the military humvee uh, uh. Rennert's taste for <laughs> grotesquely large things uh, led him to push the company to turn the humvee into a consumer product and that Is how. Oh,
1: he's behind the
0: Hummer? He invented the the Hummer. The H3? The H, well, the H1, H2, and H3. Uh, Wow. They teamed up with General Motors to produce the H2, and that's when sales took off. and it's interesting. That's why one of the reasons that sales took off, uh, was because people could take tax breaks on them because they were heavy enough to classify as a commercial vehicle bought for work purposes. <laughs> and another amazing detail about the Hummer that I did not know, uh, it's so heavy that it doesn't classify as a car. So it's exempt from federal fuel standards. <laughs> so like, it does, <laughs> it's allowed to get nine miles per gallon or whatever, right? Like, um, Uh, So, yeah, he gave us the Hummer. Um, Aside from uh, big houses and big cars, uh, there's one other area I want to talk about where he likes to put money, and that is uh, far right wing Zionist politics. Uh, Here is. And and when I say far right wing Zionist politics, I am talking the furthest right that you can possibly get. Uh, Here's how far right. So explain. Okay, this is a sentence I copied from an article. Uh, At uh, the Zionist Organization of America, the Rennerts presented the Sheldon and Miriam Adelson Award to National Security Advisor John Bolton. (laughs) It's it's just like every name in that sentence is a monster. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, He donates money to the Center for Security Policy, and that is a propaganda mill that's run by an anti-Muslim conspiracy theorist named Frank Gaffney. If you haven't heard that name before, you should look him up um uh rennert's buddies with netanyahu uh and in fact it has been rumored uh, that netanyahu intends to use rennert's residence in the hamptons as a getaway spot uh his main philanthropic donations are to west bank settlement infrastructure uh he gives money to israeli product uh projects to build settlements on occupied palestinian territory uh, and folks these are not just any settlements. Uh, these are the most extreme anti-Islamic settlements. Uh, for instance, uh, the settlement of Bat Uh He uh, Renert paid for the schools and synagogues there. Uh, one school was named, in fact, after Renert's father, uh, and he attended the opening of the school. Here's some some quick tidbits about uh, the town of Bat Ayin. <clears throat> Bat Ayin is a settlement of a hundred families with an ideology intense, even in the context of the settler movement, according to the Jerusalem Post. Arabs are not allowed into the settlement, even as laborers. Bus service was suspended when one driver turned out to be an Arab and was allegedly stoned by Bat Ayin's children. Last last spring, men from Bat Ayin were questioned as suspicious characters at 3 a.m. in an Arab neighborhood of Jerusalem. The vehicle they'd been in was found to contain a bomb linked to a gas canister and barrels of flammable material. The bomb had been set to go off a few hours later beside a nearby Arab girls school. So uh, uh, not only is he funding settlements, but he he is literally funding terrorism, right? Like that, he is putting up the money uh, for these people to build infrastructure for settlements where... They carry out anti-Islamic acts of terror, like exploding van, like basically car bombs. Wow! Um, and so that's his legacy. Uh, he poisons children, funds terrorism, uh, rips off everybody that he can, uh, so he can live in the world's biggest house and drive Hummers around. Uh, just, uh, just a disgusting human being. Uh, uh, you know, firing on every every cylinder of evil you can imagine.
1: All right, so I think we're it's it's that time. It's time.
0: It's my favorite part of the show. It's time to pick the billionaires for next week. So
1: you' gonna spin the wheel for us, Chad, and let us know who we got to deal with.
0: Yeah, uh, let's do it. And we got. Uh, Rhonda Stryker.
1: Rhonda Stryker. That is a power. Yeah.
0: Name. Uh, she is an heir to the Stryker Corporation, uh, granddaughter, uh, sorry, daughter of founder Homer Striker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, okay. Well, uh, I'm noticing on our list here, uh, there are actually two other members of the striker family so maybe we'll just do them together uh john striker and pat striker um okay so uh that sounds good yeah i'll take that they're uh, they're medical technology people uh and since i'm in minnesota which is kind of ground zero for medical device uh companies uh maybe maybe i'll take that one
1: you going to do some local research? Yeah, I'll try.
0: I don't know. I don't know if the Stryker family is uh, from Minnesota or where they're from.
1: Try to get uh, an interview.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Let's Let's uh, let's spin it again. Okay. Uh, second time, we got Victor Fung, uh, F-U-N-G. Um, Fung. Lee and Fung Air Group Chairman um okay retail very vague description in our list here uh so i don't know what that means um uh, are you down with doing victor fung
1: i can do victor fung All Yeah. Right. great okay um and you're doing the strikers yep okay very good all right. Well, I guess uh,
0: that's it for this week. Um, thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, look forward to seeing you back here in two weeks. Please make sure to like, subscribe, leave reviews, uh, follow us on Twitter. You can find all the social media stuff by going to the webpage uh, page, And uh, I think that's it.
1: Yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks again, everyone.